0: Have you ever felt on the outs? I felt on the outs. Me moving to Washington, D.C. meant me leaving my mono ethnic church, the Chinese church that I grew up in. And they, or we at the time, were 98% Chinese folks, you know, over there in Anaheim. And that was a community that I identified most with. You know, they were very much my family. And as you would expect, the forms, of a lot of what we did were Chinese. The values, oftentimes, were Chinese values. And the way we did community was Chinese. The leadership style was even Chinese, a Chinese leadership style. And, and you know, if you guys subscribe to uh, Harvard Business Review, for example, on, on Twitter, uh, you know, they're always coming up with stuff in terms of leadership uh, across different ethnic boundaries. And so if you, if you read this type of leadership stuff, you know that actually these things are Very distinct. So when I turned up at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., a church comprised of mostly white Americans, I felt like a fish out of water. To make matters more complicated, this was Washington, D.C., right? On Capitol Hill. We were just like four blocks behind the Supreme Court there. That's where the church was. That's where I lived. There were politicians walking the streets of Capitol Hill and those aspiring to be politicians walking around the streets there. And they donned their Brooks Brothers suits, their power ties, their wingtip shoes to strut Capitol Hill. And so there I was, shaved head, earrings, always wore shorts and flip-flops. I mean, what else do you wear in Southern California? Forget the suits, right? The suit, the only good that a suit could bring is to help you look normal on prom day along with the closed-toed shoes, although since I have purchased closed-toed shoes. And with all my differences, there were many times when I felt where I felt that I did not belong. But, what perhaps was the most encouraging thing to me in relation to belonging and identity was that regardless of how different I felt or how different I knew I was, I knew the pastors at the church loved me. Because of the gospel. Their love took all sorts of forms, adopting me like one of their very own children. Inviting me into their homes. We had dinner with them. We got to go on field trips with them. This is me and Jeremy. We went over there in 2002. For me, it turned into three years. For him, it turned into ten years. And Their love looked like asking questions and listening to me explain the challenges of Uh, that I grew up with, whether they would be familial or cultural issues or Chinese church background, and where and when they could. They tried to speak gospel truths into these situations. Now, where there were legitimate differences and potential divides, I was amazed because their gospel love crossed over these things. And it was an incredible testimony, an incredible testimony... Of what my mentors there, my pastors there, really lived for. And it was a fantastic testimony of what I, as a Christian, should also live for, regardless of whatever differences there might actually be. While the church at large could certainly use more displays of such gospel love, this love is not uncommon in the church by God's grace. And our pastors today, Ephesians 3 verses 1 to 13, which you can turn there with me now. It's found on page 977 if you're using those black Bibles there in front of you. In our passage today, we see that this gospel driven love is the bridge that crosses divides. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul the Apostle here, he labored to love those who were different than he was. He was a Jew, as we saw earlier, a very well-trained Jew, a Pharisee, knowledgeable of so many things of the law, an expert of the Jewish law, but yet it's obvious he risks so much for the Gentiles, that is, non-Jewish people. So if you are a non-Jew, here we can appreciate Paul as he labors to establish the church that is Jew, meant for Jews and non-Jews, meant for you guys. Last week we saw that the cultural divisions and hostility between these two camps, the Jews and the Gentiles, they were so thick. The hostility was so thick, it went back centuries in their hatred for one another, their self-righteousness. And so the Jews looked down on the Gentiles and the Gentiles did the same. But yet because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul here is empowered to love those different than him. I wonder if you are struggling here right now to love those who are different than you are. Maybe here in this church, maybe even those in your very own family. If so, Paul here is our example. But if we are to emulate his gospel love, we must embrace the gospel truths that compelled his love. If we are to emulate his love, which if you are a Christian here today, you ought to do these things it's a Command. Uh, We must first embrace the gospel truths that compelled this very love. And so from our passage we see four reasons why we in the church ought to be compelled to love those different than we are. In today's passage we see four reasons why we in the church ought to be compelled to love those different than we are. And by different he means very much so here in this passage. He means ethnic divisions, ethnic differences, cultural differences. But we can apply this to all sorts of things, whether it be socioeconomic status, cultural backgrounds in general. You could think of educational backgrounds. Just think of anywhere that there's ever been discrimination and there ever will be here, gospel love is to cross these boundaries. If you're a member of First Baptist Church, let me encourage you particularly. Uh, you know that there are some in this church who would say that uh, we love pretty well by God's grace. Thank God, right? Some of you guys have experienced this love. There are some in the church know this that actually don't think that they actually think we don't do this too well. So here, as we approach this passage, whether you think you love well or not, this passage should compel us and move us forward to a greater love. That's where our church is bound by the gospel, and where we are compelled to continue loving and even exhaust ourselves for one another, just as Jesus did for other sinners, or for sinners, that he might save them. Let's start with the very first reason. The the gospel compels us to love those different than we are because, number one, building a a diverse church is God's own plan. The gospel compels us to love those different than we are because building a a diverse church is God's plan. You know, conscientious Christians, mindful Christians are often trying to determine whether what they are doing, whether what we are doing with our lives and and the stuff we do in the church is right or wrong. Is it according to God's will? Is it not according to God's will? Ephesians here gives us confidence in our efforts to love those different than we are because building a diverse church is God's plan. Uh, Some church growth folks, uh, you know, these so-called experts or people might assign them these titles of experts in church growth, They seem, though, to be on a different plan. Over the last 50 years or so, some church growth people have advocated doing church with those who are most similar to you. This is called the homogeneous unit principle. So homogeneous, you just think same kind or same race. Literally, that's what it means. And they say, hey, if you guys want to build a church, if you want to grow a church numerically, what you ought to do is reach out to those most like yourself. What you ought to do is target certain a certain group of people defined by, perhaps, hobbies, right? You guys, if you reach out to people who share your same hobbies, uh, let's say you love cats, then you can have a church for cat lovers. Uh, it could be based on culture. It could be based on ethnicity, right? We're going to make a church for Asian Americans or, or something like that. And so this homogeneous unit principle type of church growth has led to all sorts of things, whether they be... You know, a church for hipsters, church for millennials. I know a guy and saw him yesterday who is dedicated to planting a cowboy church, whatever that looks like. But there are several problems with this model. And I'm not, uh, I don't seek to tear down um, or to go on the offensive to insult them. That's not my intention here. The Lord can use even those types of things for His grace and for His glory. I mean, many of us probably have served in churches like that. We've been parts of part of a church like that, have benefited from ministries like that. But I want to back up a little bit and see actually uh, what the Bible has to say about doing a church like that. Right? Is that according to His plan? You know, one major issue I find with these so-called church practic- practitioners is that they assume that the Bible doesn't have much to say about seeking how to grow a church like that. They just assume, the Bible doesn't really say much about that, but the Bible does have something to say about that. And because we are an evangelical church, we want to take the Word of God and let that lead uh, us and direct us in terms of how we are to do church, how we are even to evangelize and establish a church community here. Uh, Now, I can't say that the Bible has tons to say on the subject, But it does say something. And that something ought to be really important if the Creator has actually spoken. If the Divine has actually given us His Word, which is useful for all things, for life and doctrine. So what does the Bible say about diversity in the church here? Really, if you look around uh, this very church, you see great diversity. What does it say about this? Well, what is clear is that we know from eternity past, think eternity past here, God's plan was to redeem a people from every nation. Ephesians speaks much about sort of the the grace of God into eternity past. And there even, he was thinking that he was going to redeem a people from every nation. That was his plan from the very beginning. I mean, this letter that Paul had written to the Ephesian Christians uh, around 60 AD was written to a diverse group of people, Jew and Gentile. And God had, according to chapter 1, Predestined individuals, both Jew and Gentile. So, there we know from eternity past that was his plan. We we, we not only can look at his plan from eternity past, we can look into eternity future, right? And we know that a multi ethnic group will gather around Christ's throne in the end, into the future where they would give Christ all the glory, praise, and honor. So, and this is this is in Revelation 5, it's in Revelation 7, it says God redeems people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. That's just a, a beautiful picture, isn't it? You see all sorts of different types of people, like he, us here today, gathering around Christ's throne to do the most important thing that there ever could be, for us at least, in the heavens and on the earth, that is, praise Christ the king the one through whom all things are made the one to whom all things were made so you got eternity past you got eternity future but you also have everything in between this multi ethnic people of god was not only god's on god's mind from eternity past into eternity future god's intention is that his people in this world in this present age would be a multi ethnic multicultural people in the church age so, if you look again at the passage we looked at last week, uh, God addresses the present. He addresses the now. There in two thirteen, if you look there, um, it says, "But now, but now, since Christ has come, He has drawn people to Himself. The borders of hostility, the boundaries, the dividing walls of hostility have been broken down, and He draws people into Himself and to God. But now, in Christ Jesus." You who were once far off, that is, those Gentiles, who were strangers and aliens to the things of God, they have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So That's now, that's present. And then if you look over at chapter 3, verse 11, in our section today, it says, this was according to the eternal purpose, right? Back into eternity past, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized, or has carried out presently in Christ our Lord. That's past tense. That's what happened when Christ died on the cross to break down the barrier walls. He unites people to Himself. No matter what ethnicity you are, no matter what culture you come from, no matter what social status you have, no matter what educational background you have, no matter what passport you have, He unites them all in Him. This was a huge deal to Paul. Reason being, Paul or, or reason being, God had let Paul into this plan. This was the mystery that God had revealed to him, and our passage there speaks of that. It's important to know that the mystery, according to Paul, means something previously concealed, but now revealed. Previously concealed, but now in Jesus Christ, it has been revealed. I'll actually read that first section there, of chapter 3 again. You see this language of mystery come up again and again. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles And partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You see there, there's three references to the mystery. There's something that was not previously made known there in verse 5, but has now been made known in Jesus Christ. And Then you see the definition of the mystery right there in verse 6. The mystery is, that is, here's what it is, here's the definition of it. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This mystery language is used here of bringing different ethnicities together, dropping their hostility, all because of the gospel. In Colossians 1, 26 and 27, he says there, this mystery is Christ in you. Now, just to be clear, the fact that the Gentiles would be brought into the people of God had already been revealed in the Old Testament. So, Jeremy read that from Genesis chapter 17. That had already been revealed. Right? So, if you are a non-Jew, the fact that you could be and can be, and if you're a Christian, you are brought in, you are an owner to God's promises of salvation, if you repent and believe, that you are an heir to his household, a citizen of his kingdom. All that was revealed in the Old Testament, that that would take place. But... Um, how it would be accomplished was not revealed. The fact was accomplished, how it was, would be accomplished was not revealed. So if you see there, this is the emphasis there in verse 6, right? The mystery is Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. That's what's being revealed here, that these two are drawn together in Christ Jesus through the vehicle of the gospel. So this brings us back to chapter 2, verse 12, right? They were separated, these Gentiles. You had no access to the promises, but in Christ, anyone who has faith is a partaker of salvation in Jesus Christ, brought into the family of God. Speaking in the language of the nations there, you possess full citizenship rights. You have a passport of the kingdom. That's God's intention. That's what it was from the beginning. That's what it was as it was realized in Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. And it is why you see into the future that gathered around his throne is a multi-ethnic, multicultural people. It has been realized in Jesus in the church age. And if that is God's plan, then thus it should be our plan too, right? You know what this means for us as a church, for the leadership of the church? It means that we are steering clear. Of saying that we are a church for Asian Americans, or that we, and that we see clear of saying we are a church for Hispanics, or that we are a church for Biola students or college students. No, we are not. We're not any of those things. At least when it comes to our vision or our mission, which is sort of the hip language. Of today for churches. No, we are a church for Hacienda Heights. We are a church for the Puente Hills area. We're a church for the San Gabriel Valley. We're a church for anyone who can drive to us and attend here regularly and be part of our body. And so we want to be known as a church that is founded not on the gospel plus something else, but the gospel alone. Now, I would love for the church here to represent the demographics of Hacienda Heights or the surrounding area. But if it doesn't, and this church ends up being 90% Hispanic, by no intentionality of our own, I think great! I think praise God! You know, they need to be ministered to, or ministered to too. Or, if this church ends up being 90% Asian, by no intentionality of our own, I think great! That's no problem. That's God's sovereign will for that particular time, no matter how long God would have it be that way. So I have no problem with that. And neither of us should because we are a church that seeks to represent the community that it's in. Now, you know, you know uh, some people have the question, okay, well, what about the church in the hills of Tennessee? Um, and I have met dear brothers, Christian pastors in the hills of Tennessee, and I and trust me, they are very different than I am Um I couldn't even understand what they were saying because of their heavy accents. You know, should that church, and in their community, they might not necessarily have any minorities represented. Should they be a multi-ethnic, multi-cultural people? Well, not necessarily. I mean, it doesn't make sense logically. If there are no minorities, etc., in the area, uh, should they represent uh or should they go in and bring on a Chinese person to minister amongst them or a Hispanic person? They certainly can be, but I don't think a church like that ought to feel any guilt because they aren't reflecting the divine heavenly community. So that's, that's not what I'm arguing for. I'm saying that the Bible has a whole lot to say in terms of the plan for God to build a multi-ethnic people. And so where it is possible, where God provides opportunity, so churches ought to be striving for that as well. And even the church in the hills of Tennessee, the mountains of Tennessee, you know, there they would actually probably experience different cultures as well. Because you have the older generation and the new generation. Even those aspects there, they are multicultural. So in relation to this church, we are to focus on being faithful to the Word of God. Evangelizing everyone around us. And discipling those who come in here, regardless of what background they come from. And we are to focus on loving one another, whom God has placed us around, discriminating against none. And we are to leave conversions and fruitfulness, all of that to God. Results are left to God. God's plan here is for unity amongst different people. And we are to labor for that as well. You know, a caveat, though, as we think about unity in diversity a caveat as we labor for to be a church driven by the gospel, to be inclusive, it is important to remember that unity is not what is ultimate. It sounds, like a strange, it sounds like a strange caveat to have when I'm saying we ought to be a church that's inclusive, but being inclusive in and of itself is not ultimate. What I mean by that is that God does not go for unity At the expense of his truth. God doesn't go for unity at the expense of his truth, but only in his truth. And so we can experience unity through the gospel, verse 6 says. In Christ Jesus, through the gospel. So we've got to keep this in mind. And we have Jesus here, right? So Jesus himself, apparently, he was fine to say that he had come to bring division right there we know that unity is not what is ultimate but unity in Christ he also says look if you if you have if your ultimate allegiances are to your family and not to the creator the greatest king there ever could be and his kingdom he says actually that those people don't have a place in his kingdom you think about the end times judgment right he actually talks about this separation that by divine intention he is going to separate those who believe and those who don't so clearly, unity for unity's sake is not what Christ has in mind. But unity in Christ is what he has in mind. Unity in his truth. So if you're visiting as, and you know yourself not to be a follower of Jesus, it might sound weird that uh, Jesus' purpose is to divide. I mean, that that is that is true. But that's not the whole truth. Uh, you know, Ephesians 2 says actually that God goes to great lengths to Bring unity between sinners and himself. And so through his blood, by dying on the cross, he actually bears your sins, if you are a believer. He bore your sins and the wrath that you deserve in order to effect unity and to bring him to his people. And then also to bring unity amongst his people. So there he unites other uh, different people, different races in Christ, in himself, and then he unites them to God. Uh, So there, I mean, Christ goes for unity. But again, it's in himself. So the story goes of the gospel is that we were the ones who had separated ourselves from God because of our sin. We had rebelled against him. We had rejected him. And so man created the problem. The wonderful gospel, the good news, which is what gospel means, is that God then provides the solution. And so he gives us, uh, God gives us Christ. And Christ the Son takes on flesh. He lives a perfect life that we could not. And he dies the death that we should have because of our rebellion. And why does he do that? He does that to effect unity between sinners who repent and believe. And recognize his kingship, his lordship, his mastery over all. And then for those who don't, for those who remain rebellious against him. Well, the Bible is very clear. He comes to judge, and ultimately that's judgment in hell. So that's the story behind this division that will take place, this separation. Clearly there is separation, and also, clearly, he affects unity, but it's unity in the gospel, through the gospel. Well, that's the first reason why you, Christian, are compelled to love those different than you are. It is God's plan that you would. It is God's plan that you would. And so logically following on that, we see God's apostles labor to do the same. So this is the second reason the apostles labored for a diverse local church or diverse local churches. And here we're going to focus on Paul the Apostle. God had not only revealed this mystery to Paul. God gave Paul a ministry that corresponded to the mystery. He reveals the mystery, and then he gives him a a mission or a ministry that corresponds to the mystery. As God was reconstructing his people, he was bringing in Jews and Gentiles, and he was using the apostles to do it. Right? So if you're laboring for the same thing here, a a diverse church, if you're even struggling for that, um, here we ought to be encouraged not only because it is God's divine plan, but because the apostles on which all the churches stand on, they themselves labored for it. Thus Paul refers to himself there as a steward of God's grace. If you look there in verse 2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, he also there in verse 7 calls himself a minister, right? he's, He's supposed to labor for these things as an apostle, as a steward of his grace, as a minister of God's grace. And he most certainly did. Again, if you are not a Jew, if you are a Christian, you benefit from Paul's ministry, his laboring, and even go into jail for these things. Ultimately, he dies so that what we have here could continue. You look there in verse 1, he calls himself a prisoner. So at this point in time, he's under house arrest writing this letter. And he is a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Notice he is not a prisoner for Nero. He is not a prisoner for Uh, Underneath the Romans, he is a prisoner for Christ. And who is it on behalf of? It says there, the Gentiles. Paul labors for these very things. In God's plan, Paul was chosen as an apostle to the Gentiles, according to Romans 11.13. And his ministry reflected the mystery. His ministry reflected the mystery. Or you can think of it this way. His practice reflected God's promise. God promised he's going to bring together Jew and Gentile into Jesus Christ. He's going to unify them as he's unified in Jesus Christ. And so Paul's practice there is found in verse 8. What is he doing as an apostle to the Gentiles? He is preaching to them first. You see that there in verse 8. It says there, let's start there in verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, that is the Holy ones, God's people. This grace was given to preach, there's a purpose, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So there you see the two things he's supposed to do. The practices of why this gift of grace was given to him in the first place and both of those things have to do with ministry to the Gentiles. Just as it was God's eternal plan, so it is God's chosen apostle's plan. He fulfills here the promise by God's divine assistance. What was the content that he preached? You guys noticed that there? What, what, is the, what are the Gentiles supposed to hear as he labors for these things? He says there, the unsearchable riches of Christ. So even there, you see Paul, he's not laboring ultimately for unity for unity's sake, he labors for unity in Jesus Christ. As he wants the Gentiles to know the unsearchable riches of Christ. You know, this uh, reference here to the unsearchability of God's grace and God's wisdom. It's been mentioned in chapter 2. It's been basically referred to again, in, or, or sorry, it's been referred to clearly in chapter 1. And then referred to again in chapter 2 here. But even the Gentiles, us non-Jews, have access through Jesus Christ into the whole storehouse of the mysteries of Jesus. And so Paul, by God's divine grace here, he's called to be a steward of the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. And he wanted to know that they too, he wanted them to know they too, through faith and through nothing else, no works of his own, could have access to the riches of God's grace and mercy. This is why he's so determined that everyone, everyone, it says there, would know the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, the Creator. Everyone, Jew and Gentile, because salvation was at stake. Well, I pray that our church practice as a church, uh, as a church and then as individual members, would reflect God's eternal promises. It would affect, or sorry, reflect God's eternal promises. But if we know ourselves well, if you know yourself well, you know that there's a tendency to the same ethnocentrism that the Jews had back then, or basically the same lack of love that the Jews had towards the Gentiles. And I think we see this lack of love creeping in when we look at our ministry, so how we love one another, and then our hearts behind that ministry. So think about the ways in which you love your fellow members here in the church, you know the church is relatively diverse not only do we have people from different cultures and countries such as Malaysia Korea Costa Rica we got everyone here from the American culture we have people from the culture found in the various places of Mexico we have Japanese culture we have Chinese culture we even have Cajun Southern culture we have Hungarian culture. At one point in time, Indian culture, Filipino culture. We could just go on and on and on. We have people here, not only from different cultures, but different generations. And every relationship here that's, that you find attached to people in different cultures, every relationship is an opportunity to love those different from you and see God's varied people in this church built up for the gospel's sake. That's why you are here, Christian. Did you know that? That's why you are here. And according to 1 Peter 4.10, that's why you have been given a gift of God's grace. So while you while you aren't like the Apostle Paul, as in you are an apostle and a prophet, that is, you're going to be writing divine authoritative scripture, you too, though, are a steward of God's grace, according to 1 Peter 4.10. He gives us gifts of his grace in order that we might edify and build up the church. So I wonder for for you guys, do you see your love crossing other cultures in order that others would know more of the unsearchable riches of Christ? That is why Paul is writing, isn't it? A Jew writing to Gentiles. He's writing to solidify them in the grace of God. And he's really, our passage today, you know, this passage is all a... Um, What do you call it? He sort of wanders off the path intentionally, and he's going to come back to what he's going to do, which is pray for the people. So if you look there in verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, For this reason, given that we have salvation in Jesus Christ, we've been united in Christ to each other and to God, for this reason I, Paul, and then he just sort of goes off on a little important rabbit trail, and he's going to get back to for this reason. If you look there in verse 14 of chapter 3, he says, For this reason, he picks up what he started. And what he's doing here is he's laboring to make sure that the Gentiles too know that they have a solid place in the people of God. And he does that by laying out all these different reasons. It is the plan of God. It is what I labor for. And so he's just simply walking through all these things to make sure that the Gentiles know that That they have a place in God's people, solidified by God's grace. So as he loves, we have to ask the question of whether or not we too are bringing our love of the gospel or gospel love and crossing boundaries, cultures, in order that we all would know the unsearchable riches of Christ. But if you look at your love and you seem to want to steward God's grace... Towards those most like you, whether like you in culture or like you in hobby or like you in appearance or like you in social status, maybe even like you in emotional maturity, there is room for your love to grow more like Jesus Christ's, whose love crosses divides. And this is actually a very natural thing. You know, if you find yourself not doing that, you don't necessarily have to think of yourself as in sin. I think this is too just part of the process of growing in maturity. Is He's conforming us, our love, so that they would look more like His love. And it's amazing here that we have so many opportunities to actually grow in maturity for so that our love can mature to be like Jesus Christ. Just think about Christ's love. God, who is so other, so holy, sends His Son To become the God-man. To take on flesh in order to save sinful men. If you think about that boundary, there is no other boundary greater than God and man. But yet Jesus crosses it. Not only does he cross it to dwell in this oh so wonderful place. But he crosses it to bear the hostility of men. To die for those men and women who would repent and believe. Because of his love for the Father, right? because of his great love, and because of his love for sinners, he says, yes, I will go, and I will go all the way till the death. What an example of love. And we too, if we possess a genuine love for God and a genuine love for his other people, the people across the pew here, we will want to see his will done. We'll want to exalt him and his purposes to unite all things in heaven and on earth. In Christ. And if we possess a genuine love for men, we will want to see people come to worship this Christ, to know the unsearchable riches of this Christ, no matter their cultural background, (coughs) no matter where they come from, whether one might have a mental disability or not. We want to see them come to know the unsearchable riches of Jesus. And this is going to take some suffering. Did you notice that Paul is suffering so that these people would know they have a place in Jesus Christ? How are you guys suffering, I wonder? To make sure that your neighbor, who might be different than you, is secure in their place amongst the people of God. Now, if you look at your ministry and you know, okay, I'm not really suffering. It's not really costing me anything. Inconvenience or money from my pocketbook, money from my account, emotional investment, time given to other people you know, then I think we have place, certainly have a place to grow in terms of our love, to become more Christ-like. Is it costly to you? Friends, if it is costly, if you're experiencing this right now, and you know it is costly, and maybe even you want to give up, because it is so costly, friends, look to Jesus Christ's love, who crossed the greatest divide, so that you, friend, would have a solid position in the people of God, all by His grace. Think too, God forbid that we as God's people would cling to our own cultures in such a way so as to neglect or even inhibit the bringing of God's grace to others. May that never be. Well, those, we see clearly that the practices of Paul reflect the promises of God. His ministry to other people reflect the mystery of God. We come now to the third reason for why the gospel compels us to love other people. It's because a diverse church displays the wisdom of God. So you see here how he's bringing everything together? He says this plan has from eternity past was God's plan. Jew and Gentile come together in Jesus Christ through the power of the gospel. That is the plan that's going to shoot into the future and that's the plan that Paul the apostle labored for in the present, in the church age. And he says this plan Displays the glory and the wisdom of God. You you see this this sort of rousing uh, explanation here. In really the first chapter of Ephesians, there, right? He's talking about this plan from eternity past. If you look there, in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him. Things in heaven and things on earth. This is God summing up the universe in Jesus Christ. So you see this this, uh, escalation here, this climactic point of God summing up the universe in Christ and here he refers to that same thing once again. You look there in verse 9 to bring to life for everyone for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery? Hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you see this climactic thing, this movement. So you think about the snowball, right? Push down the hill, it starts off small, and then it's just massive and massive. Here, in Christ, we see its climactic fulfillment. And really, you see this too when Paul speaks about the reasons why this gift of grace was given. To preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. To bring to light the plan. And then you've got the purpose there in verse 10. Look at it again. So that, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Have you ever thought... That a multi-ethnic people, that is what's going on here, if you're a member of this church, united to one another. And to Jesus Christ as Lord displays God's eternal wisdom to the universe. So when you guys are actually loving one another, your practices reflect God's promise. It's doing something more than, yeah, we go to this multi-ethnic church. That's really fun. No, he says that what we do, this love, it testifies to something greater, something so much greater than even what's going on right here. But yet that's what it does. When your love embodies that of Jesus Christ and the church is strengthened and built up, God's wisdom is displayed, it says here, to the spiritual beings. That's what it means by rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. These, as we mentioned in the past, are orders of angels. Most likely referring to those who had rebelled with Satan, and re- referring to those who uh, who actively obey Jesus Christ and worship Christ. Now, let me try and help us appreciate what's going on here. Some Christians, right? Some of you guys, when you read passages like Ephesians two verse three, go ahead and turn over there. He's talking about men in their sinful state. And he's talking about... uh, Let's just read there 1 to 3. He says, And you, that is all people, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now get this, right? There's a spiritual aspect here that most of us sort of disregard. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He is he is very much saying, look, we actually partake in the wicked deeds that we do. We choose to do those things. He's also saying that what's behind those things is the Prince of the Power of the air, the supernatural, the spiritual realm. So some read this, and they find it so hard to acknowledge the spiritual realm. Like you read that and you're like, dude, are you serious? The prince of the power of the air is really behind my disobedience and I choose to do that? Like, is that for real? And so you might come over here to read Ephesians chapter 3.10 and say that what God is doing here is displaying God's wisdom to the heavenly realms. You think, uh, okay, you're saying that that's angels, but uh, uh, what's the big deal here? But friends, if you come from a spiritual background, let's say if you've dealt in the occult, you've worshipped other gods, other spirits, which some have who have attended our church. You know this very much so. So one time I remember going through Christianity Explained and this gal was saying that she did not, absolutely did not want to read the Bible. Why is that? Because she thought that once she opened it up, that the evil spirits would come to her. Now she came from a background where she worshipped other spirits. So this is very real for some people. It's not so evident in our own minds, I think, Because we don't have a right pulse on what's going on in this universe. Uh, But yet, even though we don't know too much about these orders of angels, yet God, as he brings us as a multi-ethnic people together, displaying his wisdom to those people. Or sorry, to to these orders of angels. So the people from this spiritual background, they read this, right? That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is being displayed to the spiritual area. They read that the uh, the prince of the power of the air is behind our disobedience. They read about how Satan works in the world, as 2 Corinthians 4 4 says, blinding the minds of the unbelieving. And so when they read of Ephesians 3.10, where God confounds, confounds, embarrasses, brings to nothing... The spiritual powers by making known to them his manifold wisdom you know what they read they read god's power they read god's might they read god's glory they read god's honor and you know what when paul first went to ephesus which is recorded in acts chapter 19 he encountered stuff that frankly most of us don't encounter people practicing magic you guys know anybody that practices magic He saw demon possessions. He saw exorcisms. And so to the Ephesian Christians here, who frankly had a better pulse on the spiritual reality than some of us today do, I think this display of God's wisdom through the church meant, it meant displaying God's lordship over everything as He frees people from their sin and the effects of Satan, as He forgives them. For their satanic rebellion against them. As he breaks down even their own hostilities against one another. And of course all behind all of those sins stands the prince of the power of the air. That is Satan himself. Whom we all choose and have chosen to follow if we aren't a Christian. Now when God does that, right? When he confounds the spiritual powers. Where is their power? When he rescues one who has been given themselves to spiritual rebellion... Where is their power? It is vanquished. And so they stand confounded, reeling back as Christ, according to chapter 1, verse 10, unites all things in him. Things in heaven, things on earth. He sums up or brings to summation everything in the world. As Colossians says, he is made known to be supreme over everything in the created universe. And actually, that's why I think he he Paul mentions this. this uh, He mentions there in verse 9, the God who created all things. He displays his wisdom to everything that is created, even the things fallen, through this recreated church, in the power of the gospel. And so this new creation that he has affected, and that he will affect in the end, they right now display God's magnificent wisdom to the universe, the power of his reconciliation, the graciousness of his forgiveness, the depths of his mercy, the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. So, if the evil spirits stand confounded, you guys ever wonder what God's angels do when God is bringing in more people into his kingdom? As he's saving each and every single one of you, you know what you know what God's angels do. First Peter one twelve uh, says that you know the angels they don't know God's plan. They're like standing right on edge. And then uh, there in First Peter one twelve, actually, let's go ahead and turn there. First Peter one twelve. This is just proof that uh, you know the angelic realm. They don't know uh, God's plan of salvation. Look there in verse ten of chapter one. He says, concerning this salvation in Jesus Christ, the prophets, that is those in the Old Testament, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours hundreds of years after, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. Now get this, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, so the prophets didn't even serve uh, ultimately themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. look get this, things into which angels long to look. So what is it that these angels do? They're longing to look into the plan of salvation as God unravels everything, as the snowball continues to gather momentum and size. Well, I think that they rejoice in praise. That's what they do at the birth of Jesus Christ, right? The announcement, at least. There in in Luke chapter 1, verse 13, 13, you don't have to turn there. It says there that the Lord appeared to Joseph and Mary and announces to you a child is born this day, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And 13 says, and suddenly, right, they're hanging on every single word of the Lord of God, waiting to see him unfold his plan of salvation. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. So Christian, when you read Ephesians 3 verse 10, you see that in saving you and in uniting you to himself and in reconciling you who freely chose to walk in sin and in Satan's influence, his glory is displayed to the universe. And then in uniting you, sinners, to each other, where once you were hostile against each other, once you couldn't forgive one another, but now you do because of the gospel, because of the church where where God's spirit lives even now, where Christ rules, God displays his glory, specifically his manifold or many-sided wisdom, just kind of like the colors that we see here amongst the different ethnic groups, the many-colored wisdom to the universe. Now, for you, Christian, you may not think about it too much, but as you have been drawn to one another through the gospel, and as you have been drawn to Christ, the head, you realize that you display the glory of God to the world, to the spiritual realm. But not only that, to your next-door neighbors as well. And even then to one another. I'm sure you guys know that laboring for this unity in the gospel is not easy. I mean there's so many things that we could disagree on. As I mentioned last week. You have personality. You got preferences. You got convictions. And then you got our sins against one another. But you know what will make our labor less like drudgery. And more like love. Christ like love. It's by keeping the display of God's glory to the world, your goal. It's by keeping the display of God's glory and his wisdom to the world and your neighbors, your goal. So, in other words, God's goal should become your goal. Right? You've got the mystery, you've got the ministry, and that glorifies God. If God's plan is that we together would be bound by the gospel, and we are ministering to one another, naturally it glorifies God. So, that ultimate goal should be our goal. But too often, as you guys know, too often our goal is to do what is easiest for us. It's to fight for our rights, isn't it? It's to prove that we are right and to show other people wrong. And just think, when was the last time that you were wronged by someone? Was your goal in approaching that disagreement that conversation, that person, was your goal? How is it, God, that by God's grace and in your power, I can ensure that God's wisdom and reconciliation, that he had planned from the beginning and into the future, how can I work to ensure by his grace and for his glory that Christ is magnified when that person sinned against me? When that person isn't doing the dishes, when they promise to do the dishes, when my husband again isn't pursuing me like Jesus Christ. Do you do that? Or think about this, maybe you think that you feel on the outs. Maybe you feel like that right now. Maybe perhaps there is even some division in this church. I mean, ask yourself, what will bring God and his powerful reconciling gospel the most glory, the most glory in my relationship, in this disagreement. I mean, for some, that might mean overlooking some sin you already know some person is working on, right? Maybe that person is already receiving some sort of accountability, so maybe that means for you overlooking that particular sin and bearing with the brother or sister. For some, that might mean calling someone out because of their sin. Maybe you know that You know that no one is helping them for the gospel's sake. Work on those things. For others, that might actually mean talking about what you are really feeling in order that we, the body, would have more opportunities to lay down our lives and preferences for the good of you. For others, that might mean simply thinking about how to really serve others and not yourself. Whatever the reason, whatever It is for you. We need to make God's glory of displaying his wisdom and his glory and his character to the universe. Our goal. What is your goal as you labor in the midst of all these potential divisions? Christ and the gospel should be our goal. Well, it's encouraging when the church learns to let these things undergird our love for others that God will indeed use, those th- use these things. If we do these things and think these ways, there is hope, isn't there? Of course, there's not perfection, but there's hope. Hope that no matter what we might feel, whether because of our own issues or the issues of others, Christians may, or Christians from any background and with whatever baggage they have, will always have a place amongst the people of God if they have been bought by Christ's blood, This is why Paul writes this section again. He's leading up to this prayer and he says, look, before I pray for you, he says, I want you to know that by divine commission, according to God's eternal plan from eternity past into eternity future, I want you to know that there is a place for those who are on the outside amongst God's people. This is why I labor. And so this brings us to our final reason why the gospel should compel us to loving others different than ourselves. It is because a diverse church provides greater confidence for other Christians. You see there, look there in verses 11 to 13 of our chapter, chapter 3 of Ephesians. He's talking about the display of God's glory and wisdom in the spiritual realm, the whole entire world through the gospel. He says, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord In whom, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. You see why he's holding that out? It's obvious. He's holding that out because he wants them to know that we together, Jew and Gentile, have this boldness and access with confidence through faith. You know, when we love those different than us, we create a culture Where every individual Christian knows that they too, regardless of their ethnicity, their background, social status, whatever, that they too, because of faith, and faith alone, by grace, they too possess full access to God himself. They possess a place in God's family, and by God's grace, a passport with full rights in the kingdom of God. So you see there, when we labor amongst one another, that we would see uh, we seek to help other people know the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ, you are indeed providing confidence to that other Christian that they too, regardless of their background, can have this same confidence. That they too really have the same spirit. That regardless of whatever it is that they feel why they are on the outs, they say it doesn't matter because Christ has come to redeem all those who repent and believe. You know, to speak to you again, as you, if you are a non-Christian, I'm sure you have felt too that you have been on the outs. I mean, I have many friends who felt like they have been on the outs. I have one friend who felt like his sin went too deep. He had committed manslaughter when he was 13 years old. His brothers locked up in life in prison for attempted murder and then a whole bunch of other things. And I was having this conversation with him about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He felt he was so other because he felt so bad about his sins. But you know what he did in light of all that guilt and shame? He said, God would never save a person like me. And so he hardened his heart all the more because of his own guilt. When Christ stood ready to forgive people just like him, as scripture throughout says, he saves the sexually immoral by his grace for his glory. He saves murderers. He saves drunkards. All for his grace. And he stands ready to save those. Who even in the midst of their sin. Feel too out of reach. Too far beyond the boundaries of God's grace. So again for you non-Christian. Look to Jesus Christ. Who crosses the greatest divide ever. To die on the cross for your sins. If you would repent and believe. You were never too bad to be saved. Never too far outside of reach of God's great and powerful arm. And you too can know this forgiveness of sin. Reconciliation to God, your creator. If you would turn from your sins and believe even today. So Christ stands ready, this gracious God we have, to save. Let's pray together.